So take it away. Michael. Okay. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be back here. And uh, so what I'm going to talk about is kind of grew over, I guess, many years. When I so I'm a what they call a pure mathematician by training. And then after my PhD, I came into evolutionary biology. And it was a pretty steep learning curve. And at the beginning, uh, my boss told me I have to teach from an introductory textbook from ecology, evolution, and behavior. And so all I could do is read the book and then go to class and talk about that stuff. And one of the things I immediately understood that it wasn't clear to me as cooperation and Hamilton's rule and that kind of stuff. I just, I couldn't wrap my head around it and it didn't make sense. And I think now, after two decades or more, at least I, I came, I made peace with myself about some of these issues. And I don't know whether you are aware of this, but there's, you know, there's some really heated deba debates going on about this, the, the theory of cooperation. You know, so, uh, a couple of years ago, Martin Novak published a paper in Nature, you know, one of his many in Nature. <laughs> and then he, the, you know, he got a, a response with, I think, I don't know, 147 people signing it, saying it's, you know, it's not true and it's all crap. And so, I mean, that's the kind of, that's the state of the field in some sense. And so there is people, you know, the, the famous people, the famous group are the Keynes selectionists, which is, originates with Hamilton's idea that, you know, if you help someone who is related, then that help is not lost to the gene causing the help because the person who is related also has that gene and receives the help and so on. So and then this is almost, so I don't know how many kin selectionists we have here, probably not too many since physicists are usually a bit more rational. And, but anyway, this is almost, it's kind of like a religion, kin selection. And then we have the group selectionists based on the price equation and that's also a bit of a religion that, that basically say that nothing, you know, they, so my, what my understanding of this is that what, what people, they make a, people are making a basic mistake and that is they take what is, in my opinion, a mathematical accounting technique and assign mechanism to it. So, Anyway, what I'm gonna what I'm gonna explain a little bit is how I see this and what to me are the essential issues. And in fact, I think in some sense, you know, cooperation is not one of the, it's not a major problem as everyone ever says. It's I think conceptually it's fairly easy to understand what is necessary to get cooperation. Is there um, sort of an obvious reason why this this these two camps have become so entrenched? Is it just is this by through politics or something, or is there so I'm to be really I mean to I believe this is a case for sociologists of science. That's what I believe. It's a in the case of Hamilton it's it's I think 
But again, I'm, I, have, I have to say I'm, I'm prejudiced, negatively prejudiced over the years. But what I think is happening is that people associate themselves with heroes to become, to increase their own status. And then, of course, they can't let go because otherwise they, they were wrong all the time. But I think it's really a kind of, it's an interesting question, actually. Why is it so entrenched? And I, I, I think it's not a scientific issue, in my opinion. But how do they experience to, uh, to uh, Sorry? When you are in science, so science is decided by experiments. Are the experiments to decide one way or the other? Well, the thing is, so, so there's another issue. You know, in evolutionary biology, the theory, there's a different kind of theory than what we nowadays, I think, have, even without, I'm saying that without really knowing it, but what I think is the case, for example, in physics, where theory is really, or most, most of theory, maybe not everything, is really very close to experiment. In evolutionary biology, somehow, I think it has to do with the fact that it's hard to do evolutionary experiments in general. And it's hard to make evolutionary inferences from data just because of the long time scales. So the theory has a different kind of role. And I think it's more prone to these kinds of debates because of that. In a limited subset of situations, the two are like, can be shown to be formally equivalent as well. So sometimes it's just, a, it's just two lenses of how you're looking at that. Is a yeah. matrix a bunch of numbers in a block, or is it vectors in an abstract space? They're formally equivalent, and you can map from one to the other. Which I think is actually the case in, in, in this particular case. Yeah, you're probably making that point. Well, I'm, I'm actually going to propose, a, you know, obviously a third alternative. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I think quantum mechanics, you and Heisenberg, you and Schrodinger, you and Dirac, so that will work. Yeah. People less prone to tribal warfare, uh, more enlightened will adopt this. Anyway, maybe maybe it will become a little more clear why it's not really amenable to this experimental testing. Anyway, so in general, what I'm what I want to talk about is um, single-level selection models and multi-level selection models, because I think most of the the debate, even though it involves group selection is about single level selection models. And I, so I think group selections like David Sloan Wilson are also on the wrong track because their models are not really actually models of group selection. So I, I also want to say what I think is a, should be a model of group selection. Anyway, so let's start out with single selection models. And, and I'm going to start out with something that it has nothing to do with biology, but I just want to illustrate how you know you can look at the same problem in different ways, and seemingly these two ways have nothing to do with each other, but they give you the same answer. So let's assume we have a bunch of white balls, a bunch of red balls, and two containers, and now we take a fixed volume of black balls, put them into the container with the white balls. Now we take the same fixed volume, it's usually explained with wine and water or something, or milk or something, but we take the same fixed volume of this mixture of balls, put it back, and we ask, are there more black balls in the white container or more white balls in the black container? Same. And 
So one way of doing this is, okay, let's, let's make an example. Let's say it's 1,000 balls and I take out 250 black balls, so I get 1,250 balls in total. I take 250 of those back. Let's say I get 193 white balls and 57 black balls of those 200 in those that make up those 250. I put those back, so I have to subtract 193 from 1,000 and so on, so that's what I have back there, so again, and then I add this here, and of course it's the same. That's what I would call a complicated way of looking at this. Because first of all, that's just an example, so it's not a general proof, but of course it extrapolates. <laughs> but the simple answer is, before and after I do this, there's the same number of balls in both jars, so it has to be the same. The numbers that switch have to be the same. It's funny if you I mean, I don't know about, it. sometimes it happens even with, you know, educated people or even physicists. <laughs> but if you, if, if you bring this up at the dinner table, you can have an hour-long discussion about this. It's true, I've had that. An hour-long discussion and they always come back and say, but, but, but. But I mean, that's, that's the whole truth. It's the same, of course. So the other trivial thing is if you switch the labels black and white, <laughs> then if you had it one way, it would be reversed, and right. it can't be true, so right. But I mean, so I have to admit, when I first started, you know, when I, I, I don't remember when I, where I saw this, but when I first saw it, what I did was the first calculation. I started thinking, okay, let me take an example. And then I realized, oh, it's the same. Then I, and, and then, so anyway, to me, cooperation that's, is a little bit like that. There are various ways of, of looking at it, but they give you the same answer. And in a way, of course, it's a matter of taste, which way you do this, which, which way you get the correct result. Yeah. Is there an easy way to simplify the, I'm not sure what it is, the mental block or leap or a black hole or something that will lead, that leads to this one hour long debate? Or that will lead to think, well, obviously, obviously, in the first what is that? I don't, you know what, that's a good question. I don't know, and, and uh, I don't know what to say when that happens. Yeah. At the end, I just say, well, you know, well, check it out. Or something. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, if we could identify that, I bet that might help us in understand, you know, these wars and there's something. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, of course, it's a little more than that because it's then, you know, because they make then inferences about mechanism, biological mechanism, which here is maybe not. Also, so. also the history, the ego involved. Okay. Sorry? There's an ego involved. You know, there's yeah. a personal ambition involved. Absolutely. This is just yeah. problem. <laughs> anyway, so, okay. The mother of all cooperation models. I don't know whether I've seen this this morning. Unfortunately, I wasn't here. But this is, yeah, this public goods game. So, yeah, this is played in groups, let's say, of N players. The two types of players cooperators, defectors. The cooperators make a contribution B to the public good, and it costs them C to make this contribution, and you assume that uh, B is bigger than C is bigger than zero. The defectors don't do anything. So let's assume we have one group of N players, K of them are cooperators, N minus K of them are defectors. So we have K times B, that's the public good that is produced. Each cooperator produces an amount B. And that 
gets distributed among everybody. So let's just, in a little table, say, see what everybody gets. So if you're a C, you get something from self, because you produce that public good. You get B over N from your own public good, and you pay the cost C. Now, from your environment, when you, if you are a C, you have K minus 1 other Cs in this group, and then minus KD. So from, from those K minus 1 other defect, uh, cooperators, you each get, you get B over N from each of them. So the total that you get as a C in this group is simply the sum of those two. Now, if you're a defector, you don't do anything for yourself. And you just get that uh, from each cooperator, you get B over N. So you get KB over N. And as you can see, that's al always bigger. What the defectors get is always bigger than what the cooperators get. So in any round of the public goods game, the defectors are always better off than the cooperators. Yeah. Question, are these defectors and cooperators always defectors and cooperators, or just on specific instances? So in, in the simplest version, they're always defectors or cooperators. So they're... But people in real life aren't. No, no. So this is not real life, obviously. That's just the public goods game. <laughs> So now, in a, so this is the game in one interaction group, so to speak, in one group. That's how it's played. Now, if you're in a population that has cooperators and defectors, these groups are formed again and again in different compositions. For example, you could have an experiment where cooperators always occur in co only cooperator groups and defectors only in defector groups, or you could form the groups randomly by just randomly draw, drawing from, the, from a big population of cooperator defectors. We'll see some of that. Yeah? Uh, why don't you write directly uh, the total payout for the cooperator? Sorry? <coughs> why don't you write directly the, the total payout for the cooperator? Oh, yeah. So, I, I, yeah, you could do that, obviously. I just because this is sometimes used to distinguish different kinds of cooperation. So when, when this is bigger than zero, it's called weak altruism. And when this payoff to self is smaller than zero, it's called strong altruism. That's the reason why I separate it out. So what you give to you. Uh, because if the, the cooperator can, have a, uh, can benefit from itself, in, this is not really a good, uh, but there is uh, some uh, special assumption behind it. I will come to that. So you are saying if this is bigger than zero, then everything is, is clear every, anyway. But notice, even if the, so, see, see <laughs> so here we go. I mean, this is bigger than this, no matter whether, no matter what this is. So in a given game, the defector is always better, no matter whether the cooperator gives something to itself or not. In a given game. You agree with that? So now, as I said, now you have a population, a big population, and 
of players, some of them are C, some of them are D, and now you draw these groups many times and you calculate average payoffs. Uh, well, so is, is only described to us a system of, uh, uh, of separate uh, in Gore's experiment, where you invert this and it ends up it's being secreted but maintained within the neighbor, neighborhood of a uh, producer so that the payoff, so, so that what the public good is, uh, is really leakage from whatever there is uh, in the... In yeah, the, but, but I mean there are... The payoff from the self could be, uh, could be much larger, it could be larger than the cost and the payoff from the environment. The environment would be in that case much smaller. Mm. But even then, so as I said, in a given group, when the game is played, this is always bigger than this, no matter how big this is. Even if this is, you know, 25 million, this is going to be bigger than this because it's just this. This is this minus something positive. That's a public goods game. So no matter, but I mean, once, as I said, when I get to the population level, this is going to play a role. So let's see what the population level is. So within any given interaction group, C it always does worse than D. That's just the setup of the, of the public goods game. Now we play the game, as I said, in a big population. We draw groups. For example, you could imagine a big population and you just draw groups of n players randomly. <coughs> then on average, for, you know, if x is the frequency of cooperators, on average, a group would have xn cooperators and, and 1 minus x times n defectors on average. If you, did, if you did that, for example. Or you could experimentally manipulate things so that you decide what the group composition is and so on. But anyway, so now we introduce this notion of in an average interaction group that a C players, so take a focal C player and because you draw these groups in some method, it will encounter different groups and on average in this in these groups that it, a C player encounters, oops, there will be EC cooperators. Now let's do the same thing for a D player. On average, there will be ED cooperators because maybe the groups are not that the average group is not the same for a C or a D. If you draw randomly, then it's then it's going to be the same. But if you don't draw randomly, then it's not going to be the same. So now. We do the same thing before, but now we do it for the average interaction group in this whole population. From self, it's the same, Bn minus C. From the in interaction environment, I now I have Ec, other cooperators in my average group. From each of them, I get B over N, so the total payoff is this. Defected doesn't do anything to itself. It gets now a different number, it's Ed times B over N, because that's the average number of cooperators in an interaction group of a focal D player. And that's a total payoff. So what do we need for C to win? We need this to be bigger than this. Or we need this inequality here. So let's, so this is the, that's a just, this is just the same as I just said. So EC is the number of cooperators among the n minus one other players 
in an average interaction group of a focal C, ED, same for a focal D. Condition for the evolution of cooperation is this inequality. Now, now I'll come back to this strong altruism case, which is when the payoff to self is negative to a cooperator. If this is the case, then this is negative. And then this inequality can only be satisfied if EC is bigger than EB. In all, and that means assortment among cooperators. In other words, a focal C player sees on average more cooperators than a focal D player. That is necessary. And in a nutshell, to me, that's the whole story about cooperation. Cooperation requires, because you do something stupid in some sense. You know, you give away stuff. Evolutionarily, that can only win if the environment that you see is different than the environment that the person sees who doesn't do that. In other, and your environment has to be more cooperative. In other words, you can do this stupid things, thing if enough people in your environment also do it, and then it, it works. And that's, and so we, well, I can say this right now, group selection and with the price equation, kin selection, it's just a reformulation of this, or this is a reformulation of group selection and kin selection. I mean, that's the basic issue, and that's why I say in some, at some level, it's easy to understand how cooperation evolves. There must be assortment. So if you, if you add to this relatedness, which presumably has to do with behavior, kin selection on top of this. Well, so then you have kin recognition. So if you, if you cooperate only with other people who also help you or who have the gene, yeah. So, there, so then this, does this appear automatically through evolution? That if you, you will tend to cooperate more often with people who are well, your kin, and I mean, therefore behavior will be inherited. That's, that, that's an evolutionary question, whether, whether it's behavior that does that is favored. You just showed that it is. If you, if you, if, then your environment of cooperative... So, but I mean, he, so okay. here, you know, I, I, I did not incorporate behavior. I'm just saying, if, you're, if the method of forming these groups in this population is such that this holds enough, so to speak, then cooperation. You don't have relatedness in here at all. You don't well, you see, we, we can reformulate things. So let me just go on for a little bit. So let's go back to random interactions. That means that the number of cooperators in a group of a focal cooperator is simply x times n minus 1. x is the frequency of cooperators on average. Then minus one is the the other num the other people, and that's the same for D as well. So this is now we come to this. So that's with random interactions. This is you know in physics well mixed or whatever. Then so we still have this condition here, but now ED is equal to EC. So the condition is that this is bigger than zero, and that's the condition that what you do to yourself is positive. That's this weak altruism. And that's why if you see that in a lot of paper. They say, well, with weak altruism, cooperation is trivial. 
But that's actually not the whole story. It's only under the assumption of random interactions. That's when it's, well, trivial. That's when, it, when weak altruism always leads to cooperation. But that's an assumption about population structure, random interactions. So for example, you could have a case where there's actually this assortment for some reason. Like you, you try to avoid your relatives, for, you know, I mean, just hypothetically. And then weak altruism is not enough for cooperation. So this is true for imprinted. So do you think imprinted genes or genes which are which are paternally, uh, which increase, let's say, the size of the fetus, which is detrimental to the mother, is that an example of this? I'm just trying to see where in biology this would happen, where you would be against your own kin. Because the female wants to make the fetus as small as possible, and the male wants to make it as big as possible. Yeah, yeah. So those would be those would, those could be examples. I haven't really thought about this. It's, I'm just, but that could be an example where yeah. So, so the evolutionary interests of mother and father are different, and then and as you say, mothers would like to, yeah, maybe not not necessarily as small as possible, but smaller. Smaller than what kills her. Right. But as a group, they have a mutual interest, which right. is if the child be born. Yes, so there is a competition. So it's exactly right. This, this is kind of negative against your own kin somehow. And yet it has to, it has to function overall. The question is So maybe it's not really against your own kin, because if you're being for your own kin, is it the group stable? Yeah, but uh, cooperation still is true, because even with the wrong sign, you're getting cooperation. Or you can, you know, even easier, you can just think of Let's say you are an experimenter and you, you decide what the, you know, the, the, the group distribution is. And you could just enforce this. Yeah. So actually, um, so here is, here is a kind of an example, actually, sorry, where I, I just quickly want to go back to the blue and white. Uh, black and white balls. So here's an example from the literature, which I think was a science paper, but I think it's, you know, from, from that, from my point of view, is trivial. It was actually by, it's a good thing, you, well, for Stan Leiber, who I see, I saw, gave, gave a talk just this Tuesday. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, he's a friend of mine, but, but uh, nevertheless, I think, so this is a paper from his group. What they did is, so they have two strains. One, two E. coli strains. One strain secretes some substance that is good for everybody. In this case, it's an, an inducer of antibiotic resistance. I mean, obviously, it's only good if there's uh, antibiotics around. But on some, on some conditions, so strain A produces this public good because once this Substance is in the environment, it helps everybody, not only the producers. And then strain B doesn't do that. Now, the public goods game can be seen that it, I mean, that it is a public goods game is when they grow together in medium containing an, uh, antibiotics, B outcompetes A. So because the benefit is the same whether you're A or B, but A has to pay the cost of producing this stuff. So B does better. That's this thing that, that uh, in a given group, in a public goods game, the defector is always better off than the, than the uh, cooperator. However, this is a case of weak altruism. 
because when they grow alone, A is actually growing faster. So the benefit of producing this to itself is positive compared to when the defector is alone and doesn't do anything. So this is actually a case of weak altruism. Now what they did is the following. They take a pool, a mixture, and then they just take random samples, dilute it down, and grow this. They grow it, and they mix all of this together and put it in the new pool, take random samples, and dilute it down, and, and let it grow, and so on. And they do this, this, this is an evolution experiment. And then they, they measure the frequency of, say, cooperators in this pool over time, what it does. And what it does is that the frequency goes up. Now, their explanation is based on Simpson's paradox, which, you know, is, I mean, it's not, it's not brain surgery either, but it's fairly, you know, it's a fairly sophisticated statistical, you know, nugget of knowledge that if you, if you have small populations in each of which the proportion of defectors declines, you can still have an overall increase in cooperators if the months that have a lot of cooperators grow disproportionately more than the other ones. That's Simpson's paradox. Now, from my perspective, as I said, we have random interactions because these samples are taken randomly, and we have weak altruism, so cooperation has to evolve. That's all. That's the whole story from my point of view. Weak altruism, random interactions, that's it. So. But I don't think, I don't think that there is no, uh, there is, in, in sense, uh, there is no restrictions on benefit costs or whatever. That is simply a, a theorem in, uh, in, in statistics. I mean, that's, that's all yeah. required. So, it's something that works also with weak or, or strong or whatever altruism. Okay, as long as, long as well, it wouldn't work with weak altruism. I mean, with strong altruism. Would it? Would it? Why? No, because then the growth would be the growth. Would, you, it's, it's just a correlation between growth and uh, and 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 the, and the frequency of, of uh, operators. That's all there is. There. You, you need to have a correlation between between the growth and the density of operators. The rest. Yeah. Well, I don't know, but you know, if you have ran, if if interactions are random, strong altruism doesn't cooperation cannot. Well, in this pie chart, it depends which pie chart gets the biggest. Right? If there, so the right hand, if the pie chart on the right hand side will become the biggest, then you would reduce it. Yeah. So I mean, it, the weak altruism comes in in the sense that you know these guys. These, so these populations all have the same size, but the ones that have a lot of green, which are the ones that have a lot of cooperators, they have a much bigger size after. And with weak altruism, you wouldn't have that. In fact, with weak altruism, you would have the, the, the opposite. The ones with a lot of cooperators would be smaller than the ones after they grew up and the ones with a lot of defectors. Because with, weak, with strong altruism, the, the cooperators will grow more slowly than the defectors when they are alone. Yeah, but here too, they, they, they grow slowly than the, the defectors, but the whole overall population grows. Yeah, but that's what I mean. So if here, 
if you have a lot of a high fr fraction of cooperators to start with, then the whole population grows a lot. But that's weak altruism. That's because the cooperators grow faster than the defectors. Other, if it were strong altruism, this size, this guy would have this size over here, and and this guy would have this size. No, I think that the, the fact that the population grows much, <coughs> much faster is that there is more public good. So yeah. if, you have, if you have more cooperators, whatever, weak, strong, or whatever, doesn't matter, the population will grow much faster because you will have more, more production of public goods. So the fact that you have more cooperators, you have more public production of good, therefore the whole population grows faster. And the rest is, uh, is simply correlation. I don't think so. I think it's really that the, the reason this population grows fast is because of the cooperators, that, because they grow faster than the... Because the production of those goods is not, is not, uh, not too costly. After a certain cost to producing these public goods, those who produce the goods, the cooperators, will will suffer too much. But they don't suffer here too. I mean, they they, they less. I mean, it, it 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 doesn't matter. You you can just go back to to this with with random interactions. You have this. This equality has to be satisfied. So if this is smaller than, if you have strong altruism. If this is smaller than zero, it's not going to work. That's just a theory. No matter. Yeah. Did, did, if I remember the experiment correctly, didn't they have to have uh, small initial samples? Yeah, that's so. That's so. It, it was random, so that you had like random sampling. There wasn't some planet size effect, so you ensure that you have some samples are all cooperators initially. If you have small, right. if you're small enough, right. Which is, that's the so dilution step. That's the dilution step. So that means that your your samples are, are uh, they draw randomly, then they dilute. Right. Yeah, but they have to, they have to, they have to dilute very very low. Well, no, I said, no, 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 I said, yeah, I said. But the, another thing, sorry to interrupt. What, what you are saying is that if if we are, if we have uh, if we have strong altruism, the the cooperators uh, lose with respect to the effectors. If interactions are random, if, if more precisely, if interaction groups are formed randomly. If you are random and, and you have strong altruism. Yeah. But I think that in the example that's, uh, that we saw before, this is exactly what happened. The, 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 the cooperators always grow slower than the defectors. So the, 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 the cooperators lose. But because the whole population as a whole grows faster, I mean, if you have more cooperators, the whole population grows. The frequency changes. Indeed, defectors will lose, and this is what you see. You see, you see that the pattern increases. Again, look at the last product. Okay, if, for instance, you are in the case of the over 65% of cooperators, and after the growth, you have half more than half to the white. Okay, it won't work, and it depends on the on the, uh, the, the close to the benefit ratio or something like that. Because the because the cooperators um, do grow more quickly than the defectors under certain conditions, they do. No, 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 no,
because the, the, the white uh, sector always goes fast. Yes, always yes. Goes. I mean, basically, basically, I think the fact. So here, these populations are the same size, and this population doesn't grow to as big a size as this population, and that's because we have weak altruism, because these guys are more cooperative. Anyway, let's, uh, if you don't mind, move on. Okay, so, you know, I said all these things about kin, kin selection, group selection, so I just wanna quickly say something about how, say, group selection people would interpret some of these cases. So for example, you could imagine that, as I said, you know, let's say you are the experimenter and you determine how you form these groups out of the population, these interaction groups. And let's say you form them such that each group is exactly the same. It's K cooperators and then minus K defectors. So then, of course, the average interaction environment for a cooperator has k minus one cooperators, whereas the average interaction environment of a defector has k cooperators, and so cooperation never wins because it's basically the same as just one interaction group. However, if you say, let's say we have only two, group, two groups that we form, one only cooperators and one only defectors, then EC would be N minus one because for every focal cooperator, N minus one of all the other ones are cooperators as well. And ED is zero and C always wins. And that's what, you know, the group selection people would say that's group selection. Because you have these cooperator groups, they do much better than the defector groups. And so cooperation evolves by group selection. So that's, so yeah, there's no variation between groups, so cooperation doesn't evolve. Here is maximum variation between groups, and cooperation evolves. And then, just very briefly, you know, this equation here, this inequality, you can reformulate it into a BC rule, so into a Hamilton's rule, and then you find that this is simply the average excess relatedness among C players compared to D players. So this, you can also see this in, in uh, kin selection framework, and of course it has been done a lot. But it's just a different way of looking at it. It's nothing, it's nothing, uh, it's nothing fundamentally different. It's just a different, in this case, even almost not only a renaming of things. Michael, for people who aren't aware of the Hamilton's rule, can you explain so, B and C? Oh, okay. So, so B would be the benefit, C is the cost, and this would be the relatedness, the average relatedness of, your, of, of the person you interact with. And so this rule, this is what's required for the evolution of cooperation. And it just, that's just the same rule as reformulated, where this is the excess relatedness among C players. And so what's just, the one coming in from? Uh, so EC is the probability, no, no, in the equation, just intuitively. EC is a it's just because you, it's your, yourself, yourself, you know, EC are all the others and then there's yourself also in that group. That's, that's the way. probability that you encounter somebody like you. Yeah. Fractional yeah. times. Compared to Compared all, to the, all yeah. the others. Yeah. And isn't that exactly price equations? Sorry? Isn't this exactly price equation? Because EC and ED are the correlation coefficients of the price equation. Yeah, I'm, yeah, so I'm sure you can also re just reformulate it in terms of the price equation. 
And so this this is actually very you know this is one of the philosophical issues. So about you know formulation and mechanism. So if you say you know so kin selection, people would say, well, this is you know kin selection. So this is the mechanism. I would say, well, this is assortment. Well, this is the mechanism. Group selection, people would say, well, this is group selection. This is the mechanism. So I don't really know what to say to that. Because it's, uh, well, what I would say to that is all three of them are just accounting. It's just one perspective of taking stock of things or different perspectives. You've said something very simple, which is, which I don't think is different from what Bryce said either, which is that all that matters are these correlation coefficients. Yeah. Those correlation coefficients could occur because there are two genes in the same organism, right. or they could be because there are two organisms in the same population. Or anything else. There are any or number of ways you can generate a correlation. Right. The only question is, given the correlation, what happens? Right. There's, no, there's no philosophy there. It's just a statement. If the right. correlation is this, then you see yeah. that. But the thing is, so I, I would, I would agree with that entirely. The thing is, if you talk to, which I did extensively, if, if you talk to kin selectionists, they. They always feel there's something more there. There's some. It's almost like it's a magic thing for them, kin selection. And I haven't, you know, I have, I haven't been able to resolve. It's a little bit like the the black and white balls and the dinner table. Like I've talked, I've had, you know, hours of discussions, and we've never quite been able to resolve the issues and to agree. So if there was a cost associated with relatedness. I think of the immune system. And the immune system, as it evolves, is actually increasing diversity. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that there are viruses that you have to deal with. So you don't want to just replicate copies of yourself, which means when you select a mate, when you select somebody who's different. who's different than you, which is, of course, not good for the body, because the body wants to, it's easier to do what you just said. Mm -hmm. Could you, could you, could you, so then the kin selection people and the group selection people would be completely flummoxed because you've added components of both. They can't explain this either way, and you might be able to. It's just a... Yeah, I mean, then, of course, then you have your... So, I mean, the basic game structure here is, of course, very simple. It doesn't include any of these complications. Yeah. But then you would have to include these complications, so saying that, you know, if, if you... But could you make an analogy with some kind of effect that would be analogous to disease in this process? Yeah, I think you could. It would be a different kind of game. I'm just thinking of taking this to the next step from your perspective, which would not be explainable by either the king guys or the group guys. Well, see, the thing is, because I personally believe because the price equation and the Hamilton's rule, they're just accounting techniques that are you know, possible in certain circumstances. Whenever they are possible, whenever it is possible to apply them, they are correct. It's not like, I mean, it's an accounting technique. Yeah. It's just taking stock. There's nothing wrong with it. What is wrong, in my opinion, is, so that I'm going to come to that, what is wrong, for example, if in my opinion, if someone says you cannot understand cooperation, the evolution of cooperation, if, if you don't know about Cain selection. I totally disagree with that. In fact, I think in a world where Cain selection hadn't been invented, and such a world could be imagined at least, we, could, we would understand cooperation just like this. 
There's no. So I'm not saying you know the Hamilton's rule of cancellation is wrong as a method. What I'm saying, what's wrong is the implications that they they make in terms of. I don't know. I don't even know in what terms it is. I mean, I don't know whether this happens in physics that you have different ways of of seeing the same thing, and both ways are actually correct. And it's it's either sometimes, of course, one perspective somehow gives you intrinsically more insight because I don't know of what you're looking for than another perspective. But I mean, it's not. Yeah. Do you think that these are? Uh, when you use the word sociology, you could also use the word politics in a sense because both of these arose in the context of the Cold War in many ways, and there was, you know, a real debate going on there, the ongoing, uh, um, that hasn't been resolved, and you could use the equations either way, depending on whether you were, you know, yeah. one or the other. So, and that's an emotional, political context where people as we know, tend to believe what satisfies their uh, their prejudices for science. Yeah, I mean, I so I think that's entirely possible. I'm not really familiar with this in this particular context. And the people who are who I know are the most you know adamant proponents of kin selection. I don't know whether they they are almost a bit too young to be Cold War people, but I know. Political views, you know, with with uh, Stephen Jay Gould and with with John Maynard Smith. I mean, they have played a role. In, well, it doesn't in even have to be Cold War. It could be, you know, yeah, uh, you, Freeman thinking or yeah. Justin Bieber. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Could I comment? Sorry. So, so there's um, maybe two big. Uh, Cited examples of how you can get altruism, strong altruism, strong altruism among non-kin, uh, like habitat preferences or green beard effects. Right? Like if you're conceptualizing a single gene, um, uh, altruism, and you know the theory. I mean, in either case, uh, the green beard effect or habitat preference, you have this false beard problem, right? Where where you have one that, um, the cheater would be one that, so the green, the green beard mechanism is where you have a single gene supposedly that codes for a, a recognizable trait, the altruistic behavior and a, a discriminatory uh, ability. So uh, supposedly that could allow altruism among non-kin, but the problem is if you have one that uh, expresses the beard but not the, not the altruistic behavior, that can, it's called the false beers. That that is the kind of cheater in the system, right? In the same way, if you have habitat preference, you have the same type of deal. If one had a habitat preference but wasn't altruistic, yeah, right? Also. And so then, but then, so those are two big mechanisms by which you could have altruism and non-kin, and they're both uh, susceptible to cheating, right? Um, so it seems like to me the only the only way you can get altruism among non-kin, if that's true, unless you assume maybe two genes are involved or something, is that if by expressing the behavior, you're automatically subjected to, uh, by expressing a particular trait, you're, you're automatically, you have a, a chance of being a recipient or an altruist. Um, and a good example is warning toleration, where 
uh, an insect ex expresses a particular color, uh, the predator recognizes that, okay, this is a distasteful insect, but it educates naive birds, for example, and butterflies, okay? Now, if you express that color, there's a chance you're gonna be the one doing the educating. There's a chance you're gonna benefit from somebody else educating the bird. And so that's a good example where it seems like to me, it's actually, and people talk about this example as being altruism. I mean, it's one of the only real good biological examples, in my opinion, of altruism among non-kin. So then, you know, most examples are among kin, and so, I mean, I think that's part of the reason people focus on kinship, is because it is one way that, so if you have, you know, the, the kinship situation isn't susceptible to the fall spirit situation as much because if you share immediate common ancestry, you inherit the same uh, exact identical copy of the wheel. So if you're... Yeah, but I mean, so this kind of kinship, yeah. I mean, so I would like to point out, so what I'm saying has nothing to do with whether it's kin or not. This applies to kin and it applies to non-kin, applies to, in fact, one of the advantages that I see in this assortment perspective is that it applies, for example, to interspecific cooperation. So in other words, cooperation between you know, microbes and plants. It's the same concept. What you need is that there's assortment between cooperators, in this time in, in the two species. So it immediately translates to, to a more general setting, whereas kin doesn't really translate to that. Yeah, but I'm just talking about within species. Kinship is a dominant, uh, if you just think about the me mechanistically how it works, uh, it's, it's less but what acceptable. Do, but what does kinship mean? And basically, the way you describe it, it just means viscosity. In other words, it just means that the people that you encounter are related because that's where you live, so to speak. And so here, again, so let me let me pick up from there because with the assortment perspective then what you really need to understand is what leads to assortment or exactly. what leads what I'm saying is if you actually think about the mechanisms that can lead to assortment among non-kin they're susceptible to cheating because well you know that's options. that's true that they're susceptible to cheating but I mean there have been many papers that have studied this kind of stuff and then there sometimes they are and, then and there's, no, there's almost no examples biologically so that's that's what I'm saying so if you're talking about evidence there's not the kin selection, well, you know, I, I don't just use kin selection. I like to think in terms of group selection and all that stuff. But I, and I've also tried to think about how, how would you get altruism among non-kin, you know? And uh, it's, it's not. Were you going to start talking about spatial stratification? Sorry? Were you going to now do spatial distributions? Yes. Because okay. nothing that you've said, I mean, everything changes when you put spatial structure in. So. Right. And so this, this is an empty system. argument because everybody's talking about big systems. Once you have spatial structure, then you get totally different results. So let's see it. And the next thing that I like about your framework is that we don't need to invoke can. We just need some spatial structure. And we also don't uh, need to worry about, and maybe this is part of the difficulty in translating into biological examples, how do we measure B and C and what are their units? Here we're just making some very general statements that must be true about the relative uh, natures of B and C, 
And then part of the difficulty in experiments is defining what B and C are. And many, many, many times, in my view, in evolutionary biology, there's no attempt to quantify B or C beyond, well, it must be good to eat more fish, or it must be good to run faster, or it must be terrible if you have three legs. Um, and then these are, these are impossible units for us to work with. And so we could endlessly and do talk in circles. Well, I bet it's harder to do this. Well, I bet it's easier to do this. Well, I'd like to have 10 children. Uh, but, but what I like about your framework is that we do not need to worry about these things. But we must agree, then, that a certain set of conditions that satisfies relationships between B and C will give us cooperation in one case and other conditions will. Mm. And I think this is a really useful framework for work. The, the unit is the number of awards in a three-legged race. <laughs> Anyway, so, so uh, yeah, what, what the assortment perspective does for me personally is that it, it makes it clear what the actual problem is in understanding cooperation, and that is understanding the mechanisms that generate assortment. And, and see, in, like, let's say the, the kin example, you know, kin, if you interact with related people, to me, that's not the mechanism that leads to that is the reason why they don't leave the nest, for example. It's not, the mechanism is not that they are related. The mechanism is the fact that you actually, or the thing that causes you to interact more, more with your kin than with something else. So the, the, the thing that causes assortment, that's what we need to understand if you want to understand cooperation, at least in this kind of framework. And so spatial structure is one of the things, it's one of the few things that we know that can, so viscosity as they sometimes call it, it's one of the few things that can lead to assortment. And of course, I'm fully aware, but let me just reiterate this. Of course, kin selection people rightly just call this kin selection because what spatial structure does is you interact more with your own type than with the average type. And Fair enough. I'm just objecting to the fact that that's the only way of looking at it. So spatial structure is one way, and you know. So this is a famous, or at least a, yeah, it's a famous paper. Well, many cited, many I think thousands of times. Twenty years ago, where they have to basically they play the prisoner's dilemma. Prisoner's dilemma is basically a two-person public goods game on these lattices and show that even though, of course, in a well-mixed prisoner's dilemma you never get cooperation, in a spatial prisoner's dilemma you get cooperation because you can get these clusters of cooperators and that's basically a sort of, they can nourish themselves, so to speak. And so let's see, I'm not sure I, I should these go. These were done on lattices? These were done on lattices and of course. Synchronous update? Time, that is everyone's so yeah so you know I mean this is a whole industry of course and it has developed into a, a whole industry these whole lattice models and then networks and asynchronous updating whatever you want yeah. I mean this there are hundreds of papers and I they always send me those to review and uh, <laughs> but you're saying the details are not so important that you always get similar type well, you know, of course, for for a particular quantitative result, the details are important. Sure, but, for, but this conclusion about the cluster formation. The conclusion about the cluster formation robust. that is robust. Yeah. It's definitely robust. 
this is also attractive because in the same way that you were saying you can now move outside of the species boundary, that is sent into interspecies relationships, you can apply this to any units of interacting uh, <coughs> I can. I'm thinking of protein RNA complexes that have spatial structure, genes, autochromosome, autochromosome doesn't matter, that have spatial structure, nucleotide arrangements that have spatial structure, and we can use this as a way to think about how certain properties emerge under one type of situation, but others emerge under different conditions. Yeah, that's a that's a good point too. Yeah, so this is a let's see. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it's kind of open ended, so I should uh, I'll just go through it. And it's also basically the only empirical example that I have here. So this is phenotypic noise in Salmonella. This is I did this with. Uh, with Martin Ackerman for DTH in, in Zurich and the group there, and they study Salmonella, obviously. And what they find is that they have basically isogenic cells have two different phenotypes when they when they infect the gut of in this case it is mice. And here's just a little movie that they did to show that it is. So these are all the same, genetically the same cells. And some of them express this virulence factor and others don't. And it's just a little movie to show you that it is what they call phenotypic noise. So it's not like one region has it and the other one doesn't. It suddenly just pops up and it seems to be random to some extent, which ones express this and which ones don't. And as I said, those are, they have the same genome. So this is phenotypic noise. And so the problem that they, well, that we addressed there was that basically I'm sure that's an oversimplification in many ways, but that's how described, they described it to me. So basically you have two types of cells. Genetically they're all the same, but phenotypically they're different. One type of cell goes into your gut wall and causes an inflammation. And the other type of cell stays in the gut lumen and grows there. And so in fact, yeah, so the, most of them go into the tissue and some of them stay in the lumen. Now here, what we see here is the more you have in the wall, the bigger the inflammation is. So these are really the ones, that phenotype that goes into the wall is really the one that is influential in generating the inflammation. And the inflammation, that's, again, I'm just repeating what I heard. But the theory is that the inflammation is there to help the ones in the lumen to grow because it kills off competitors. And the third piece of evidence here is that the by ones that actually... By competitors, you mean other species? Other species yeah. of, of bacteria in the, in the gut. And the third piece of evidence is that these, the ones that actually go to the gut wall, they don't really survive very well. So they commit, in some sense, suicide. So this is the phrase, suicide phenotype. Yeah, exactly. So these these are yeah. So they just did some experiments showing that the ones that are in the gut tissue 
they are suppressed by the mice, Im mouse immune system or killed. So, okay, so here you have two phenotypes. One is the defector, which stays in the lumen and doesn't do anything. The other one sacrifices itself so that the, the defector does well. And then the question becomes, okay, why would such a thing evolve? Because the ones that do it, they, they sacrifice themselves. So obviously, if this were genetic, yeah, clonal, right? They're exactly the same genome. Yeah, but if this were a genetic difference, it wouldn't it wouldn't work, because the the ones with the gene going into the gut wall would all die. Yeah. But the, the, the differentiation between the, the two phenotypes is uh, reversible or irreversible? I think it's irreversible because once you're in the gut wall, that's it. That's where you stay. Okay, so uh, the question is, uh, how do you get from a green cell in your movie to a dark cell? I don't know. How do you get there? They as because if you can switch from one phenotype to, to the other phenotype, I mean the TSS1 plus is not a, a defector. It's only a part of the strategy of the, of the group to, uh, to propagate. So, uh, yeah, look here, there are many black cells. So they are switched. The, the, the black can switch to brown. I think what happens is that the black is kind of the, the base phenotype, and that can switch to green, but it can't switch back. So once no, you. No, they, they, they start to switch back. Most of them have switched back. This is reverse green, and the black. Isn't this reverse switch to black? If it goes into the gut, it's green, doesn't it? So of course they switch when they divide. Because it's the government's green. Okay. No, 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 yes, but, 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 but uh, I mean, if you can switch from one phenotype to the other phenotype, okay, the, the, the strategy of the group is the, is, uh, the kind of switch uh, is part of the strategy. And, and uh, it's strange to, uh, to, to, to make a competition, uh, to, to see uh, it in terms of competition between those two phenotypes. Because the reality in this Situation might be different from the reality when it's actually in the mouse or whatever it is. Ah, because okay. here they are growing, so you, or they want to go some of them go to the gut wall and stay there and cause the inflammation and die, or you know have a much higher chance of dying, and the other ones don't do that, and that's it. So it's not like the ones in the gut wall go back once the job is done or something. I think so that's this is a suicidal phenotype. Yeah, this is a suicide. That's what they say. I mean, I think you know if you look at like I don't think everybody in the gut wall dies, but potentially. It's a suicidal phenotype. But if they're both the same genetic structure, then they're, they're both engaged in roles that are increasing the fitness of their genes. Yeah. So, but I mean, so okay, what we did in the model then is compare one genotype that doesn't do that and one genotype that does do that. That, you know, one genotype that doesn't sacrifice any of its cells, it just stays in the, in the gut lumen and waits there. And then another genotype that sends, let's say, half of its cells to the gut lumen, I mean, to the gut wall, 
causing an inflammation, and then of course everybody benefits from that, not just uh, the cooperators, everybody who is there. So now you have again, you ha so in this case, defectors are those ones that just don't do any phenotypic noise. That's a genetic a gene that causes no phenotype. So we assume that, so to speak. Well, I thought you said they were genetic. No, no, no. For the, <laughs> so now, the guys that do the phenotypic noise, they are all the same genetically. But that's, let's say it's a gene that determines whether you do that or not. I mean, whether you in principle can say, okay, with 50% chance I'm gonna go over there and, do, and cause the inflammation. And then there is another genetic strain. So within that strain, everybody is isogenic. Everybody has the same gene. But then there is another strain, a genetically different strain, that, does, that just doesn't do that. They just wait in the gut. Those are the defectors. They just wait there and hope, for example, that the other guys are around that go and sacrifice themselves to some, to, with some probability. So there's one strain that doesn't do the phenotypic noise. And then there is another strain that does do the phenotypic noise, but the benefit that this second strain generates goes to both strains. So that's, and then you have the cheater, the defector cooperator problem. Uh, experimentally, the, the defector strain that is a genetically different from the cooperator strain is found in nature or is it engineered in a... No, it's found naturally. They find that. So, but I mean, so the, they don't find the strain that doesn't do it. That's just a hypothetical model to explain why you would have a strain like this that does the phenotypic switch. So does, 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 the, does the pure strategy defector invade or not invade? Right, exactly. I mean, this is a simple question, right? You've got a mixed strategy and a, not, and a pure strategy. Exactly. And the question is whether... Yeah. The, the mixed strategy would be viewed as the cooperator because some of it some of its strain sacrifices itself and the pure strategy would be viewed as the defective. Wouldn't it depend totally on other populations? Because if if there was if there were lots of other populations or or if, if there were if 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 the, the the one that is switching disappeared then then the presence of other populations would overwhelm the one who is the defector. You mean other other bacteria in other the gut? Other bacteria in the yeah. gut, because there's no inflammation. And yeah. So I mean, we yeah, yeah. probably. So, so, so is this independent analysis independent of boundary condition or not? Can you do this in some isolated context? Maybe in a lab you can, but in reality, is this a relevant yeah. problem? I mean, so personally, actually, I find this whole you know gut ecology and microbiome ecology and evolution extremely fascinating, but. Yeah, here we don't, you know, we don't bother about that because we can. How, how do you think about fitness in a situation where you have suicidal phenotypes, different sub, you know, different so, phenotypes doing very different things than others? And uh, well, I mean, so in, in in this, you know, in this very course in some sense conceptual modeling fitness is just a payoff from this game so we, we just formulated this as a public good game so for example payoff but averaged over the entire so I mean over every individual even the ones that die because they yeah yeah exactly huh. so 
the reason I'm, I'm talking about this example because of, is because of spatial structure, because it's an example of spatial structure. And of course, the spatial structure that we envision here is that one host, like that this is one group, so to speak. You know, each human is one group, is one group of salmonella. And so they are spatially structured. They are not well mixed. The whole salmonella population is not well mixed. They occur in these, in these groups. Sorry? Containers. <laughs> yeah, yes. or deems as they call them in, in population biology. So what is a deem? A deem is a local population. Okay. So there are these, you know, these deem models where you have a bunch of locals, like coupled oscillators in physics, where you know the local oscillator is, would be the local population, and then they're coupled somehow by dispersal or something. And so in a deem, so in a deem, we assume a deem is, is one of these public goods game. So it has N salmonella in there. It starts with M individuals. And these individuals, let's say they come from the whole pool. So you know they're shed by every host, the, the salmonella, and then they're in some pool. And then they go back to, to hosts. And each host is seeded by M individuals. And it grows to size N. And again, we have these two phenotypes. Defected does nothing. C, with probability Q, C commits suicide. So C is this phenotypically plastic strain. And let's say in a deem where we have K cooperators, then so and that's this averaging. What's the probability? What's the payoff of a cooperator? Well, first of all, you need to multiply everything with the probability that it doesn't commit suicide. Because it does. If it does commit suicide, it's not going to get anything. So that's the 1 minus q. Yeah. If it does survive, then we have k minus 1 other cooperators. And each one of them commits suicide with probability q. If that happens, we get a benefit b. And then there's some baseline fitness. And for the defectors, they just wait for all the, the k cooperators to commit suicide and get a benefit b. And there's some baseline fitness. So within a deem, those are the payoffs, and those, those, this is what we, you know, in this kind of model, what you call fitness. And I, so. I have one question. Though. I mean, there's some subjectivity involved in saying D does nothing, you know, and, and C commits suicide. I mean, D actually uh, is, is processing uh, uh, information, as it were, from the environment to continue this strain, right? And C, for all we know, might think it's just thrilling or sexual. Bond with the gut wall, you know, and, and, and not considered to be. Yeah, we would, we would, Greg and I were briefly talking about this. That, that this is, uh, I mean, that's what that's. I have to, you know, apologize, but that's what people do in public. I know, but, but it, it bothers, you know, so, me because it, 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 it puts a judgment on the person who's doing the actions that are taken. Well, you know, that, that's actually a good point because cooperation in a lot of papers and literature, you know, the cooperators are the good guys. But of course. Not cancer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, that has nothing to do with, you know. In that, but that's a general thing in, in, in evolution biology. You know, high fitness is somehow associated with good, but that has nothing to do with ethically good. I mean, there's nothing. There's, there's absolutely no connect between high fitness and being good. Right. 
But even here, stripping <laughs> out the moral judgments, we do not know enough about bacterial biology to answer any of those questions. We cannot yeah. say that it is not the case, or it is the case, that the C bacteria derive some benefit, not defined by being in the wall, or they don't. We just don't know it. And so then, when you're doing experiments, you kind of make a decision. I'll either do the experiments in the absence of most of the information that an ideal run I'd like to have, or I won't do any experiments at all. I mean, that's what it yeah. comes down to. Should we do any experiments at all? Well, I mean... If we require to know all parameters, we should definitely stop doing all experiments of all kinds. So, I mean, I have to say, you know, to get this kind of data is already... And that's quite a bit of work. So I, did, I didn't do that. That's just this group in, in, at the ETH. And that's a lot of work to get that kind of stuff. That's a lot more work than to do the little model that I'm going to explain. So what you've um, got is a relationship between subgroups. And you could, can't you strip away any kind of you know, labels, subjective labels, and say, just mathematically, this group uh, relates to Well, so does nothing, does nothing just means in relation to this phenotypic plasticity. I mean, obviously they do a lot of stuff, but does nothing with regards to, to our problem at hand. So they just don't, they, they don't commit suicide. I mean, I could also just say D is the phenotype with Q equals zero. I can say that. Yeah. We're just comparing two strategies, a big strategy and a pure strategy. Mm -hmm. I want to see your number. I want to see the result. So let's go. Okay. So and he, what's happening is that the, the Q phenotype sometimes can invade because of this theme structure, because of this spatial structure. So what, what, the way you, and well, so the, the reason I also present this here is because we can you know, calculate this average interaction group. Because if you are a C player, you know, see we have M seeds. And one of the seeds is you. So you know that one line, one N over M, is for sure going to be all C's in your. So you, that's the assortment, so to speak. That's what generates the assortment. So what's the, what's the number of other C players? If you are a focal C, well, it's this N over M minus one. Those are these C's, and then from the rest, you just know that. Of these n minus one seeds, there's a chance x that they are c, because x, x is the frequency of cooperators in the in the global pool, and if they are cooperators, we get n minus m other cooperators here. So that's how many cooperators a cooperator sees. A defector sees from here, from this thing, the same number of cooperators from these m minus one. So each one of those is a cooperator with chance x. And if it is a cooperator, you get n over m cooperators. But its own line is for sure not a cooperator. And so we see already that the amount of cooperators that a cooperator sees is bigger than the amount of cooperators that a defector sees. And that's this assortment that is necessary for the evolution of cooperation. And again, of course, so. A couple of months after we published this paper, we got uh, some note from some king selectionists and said, well, this is king selection. You know, they published a paper saying that's what they do sometimes. They, when you, whenever you publish a paper that is not king selection and explains the evolution of cooperation, they say, well, this is king selection. But that doesn't help because I'm not saying 
of course, you could do the accounting in the in the kin selection framework, and you would, if you do it correctly, you get the right answer. Anyway, so and then so now once once you have these average numbers of cooperators in the two for the two uh, focal types, you can calculate the average payoff. And then you can do this analysis you, when, you know, you can, so of course, it, whether C, as, as you mentioned, whether C invades D or D invades C, it will depend on this Q here, on the propensity. So for example, if Q is one, then C will of course not win, obviously. But in fact, and it depends also on M, when M is big, the number of seats, then the, the spatial structure kind of goes away. So the, the smaller M is, the more spatial structure you have. And so, and when Q is, for example, when Q is too big, D can always invade C. So when the, when the propensity to commit suicide is large enough, then D is always, at least when uh, initially, is always a good strategy because it can just profit from all these guys that commit suicide. But when Q is low, then in fact the only um, stable strategy is this is this cooperator, and so this is always a Q, a, a fixed Q player against a, a D player. That's so a two-person game, or so a fixed Q positive player against a Q equal zero player. But you can also do continuous evolutionary dynamics in Q space. So you ask, where if Q were to evolve by small steps, where would it end up? And this is something, so I'm not going to go into that, but this is something you can do with adaptive dynamics. It's basically the same setup, but you now have a resident and a mutant. And you ask, okay, if I have this resident and I take a mutant close by, can it invade? And if it can invade, it becomes the new resident and so on. And then you find that it goes to this Q3 star value here, and that is actually a value that then cannot be invaded by zero again. So anyway, the point here is that this is a simple model where you can calculate these assortment, these interaction groups, and you can just see how cooperation evolves because of assortment, because the average interaction group for a cooperator is different than the average interaction group for the defector. So if you change, if you make M small, then it, it gets harder for the to, to, to form. If you make M small, yeah, if you make, the oh, N. It's not able to grow very much. Because yes, you assume there's some. There's yeah, some you know, um, that's probably true. If you make N big, if you make. N is bigger than this. Yeah. So this was the, the spatial structure mechanism for assortment. There's another mechanism that's more like what you were talking about, it's basically conditional behavior. And, and I think, so you were, you didn't get to the iterated games, but an iterated prisoner's dilemma. So a strategy like tit for tat is a strategy, can be viewed as a strategy that creates assortment because it leads to defection against defection, but it leads to a series of cooperative events against other cooperative, against other tit for tatters. 
So there can be, so conditional behavior is another mechanism for assortment. If you only cooperate with other cooperators, and that's kind of kin recognition, that's this class of. But again, it can be, so for me, again, the, the, and as I said, you know, I don't really actually want to get involved in all of these debates because I don't think they're so fruitful, but it's just more a personal thing because it took me about two decades to really kind of get a satisfactory answer for myself. And for me, this kind of does the trick because it is general and because it has all these, you can view different special cases, or different cases that are out there as special cases of this general concept. So if you go back to David Axelrod's big experiment when he did the, in, in the 50s, right, when he had these games play against each other, yeah. prisoners, each other in prisoner's dilemma, and tit for tat won. Yeah. At that point, he was totally astonished about yeah. why it won. Yeah. But now it's obvious. Right? Yeah, now, I mean, it's yeah. obvious. Right. Because you're inducing different behavior in the person. Yeah. The person can rely on history to judge what you will do, then it's better to play yeah. it for that. Not David Axel, Robert. Robert Axel. Robert, 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 Robert. Yeah, Robert Axel. But he wrote a whole book on this, and yeah. he said, I have no clue what's coming from. Okay, so that's just the first one. <laughs> but we can stop at any time. I mean, uh, but so just. So the evolution of cooperation, and again, that's just my perspective, and I'm in, I hope personally that I'm not making the same mistake and saying that's the only way of looking at it. That's just the way I look at it, and I'm. I repeat, this is these interaction environments, that's also an accounting method. It's just a way of keeping track. For me, it's just one way that allows me to, you know, that makes it easy for me. But what I would say is that in a world where we don't have Hamilton's rule or kin selection theory, and we don't have the price equation, we can still understand cooperation. That's, that would be my claim. I'm not saying we cannot use these things, but they are not exclusive. And in particular, what that to me means is that I always, I, I don't understand it if someone uses an accounting method and then says that's a mechanism. So I, I, maybe we should pause now. There's uh, one more point. Oh, one more, I'm sorry, sorry, okay. <laughs> After this, let's, let's take a breather and assess what we should do tomorrow. Okay, sure. Yeah, I mean, most importantly, what this kind of perspective does for me is that it clearly identifies what the actual biological problem is for cooperation, and that is to understand the mechanisms that generate this assortment. That's what we need to understand. I don't think, you know, in principle, it is conceptually hard to understand when cooperation evolves. What is probably hard to understand is given, you know, what are the conditions that generate this, this assortment. Yeah, anyway, so, and that's what would come next, but. So, uh, what I suggest is that we break now, uh, because the philosophy here at the KITP is not to fill up your days with talks. Uh,